Lambert, five minutes in, we're ready to roll. <laughs> Good morning, good morning, everybody. I've been, uh, I looked, I turned my house upside down this week to find my copy of uh, Dave Roper's book on James, and uh, in desperation, I finally looked in my briefcase, and there it was. (laughs) All along, in fact, two copies. (laughs) Uh, Growing Slowly Wise, Building a Faith That Works is a commentary on James by Dave Roper, one of the early day founding pastors who's now up in Idaho. And this is in the bookstore, and it's just excellent, just excellent. It would be well worth uh, reading and memorizing and having already. Okay, James. James is the uh, pastor of the uh, early Christian church in Jerusalem, a church consisting mostly of converted Jews. Uh, he's writing this letter to Jewish Christians who've been scattered abroad, mostly, uh, it's uh, probably the earliest letter in the New Testament would have preceded the letters of Paul, for example. Uh, and it's uh, written in a style which the rabbis call the string of beads or the string of pearls style of little nuggets of uh, wisdom uh, stuck in here and there, little places where you'll want to definitely underline and, and do a memory verse. And we got into, well into chapter 2 last week. And... Uh, uh, James picks up a theme and then he dumps on us real heavy duty and then he goes on to something else. And last week his uh, uh, main point was that we ought not to show partiality towards people based on, particularly on social status, on income level, on richness and poverty. And in Jerusalem that would make great sense and the early church would make great sense where there were big class distinctions between people who were very wealthy and came to know Jesus, and people who were poor and came to know Jesus, and they naturally want to meet together. And James insists that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and there are no distinctions. In fact, he says the poor have an advantage. The poor know how needy they are. The poor have nothing to lose. The poor can lay up all their treasures in heaven from the start, and the rich may have trouble doing this. So he's he comes out very strongly that it would be better to be poor and have strong faith and, and obey the Lord than to be rich and, and depend on your riches. So that, that runs on down uh, in chapter 2. Uh, verse 5 says, for example, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? If you've ever gone to a third world country where people live in, in poverty, and you've met Christians in third-world countries, third-world countries, Philippines or India or Egypt or whatever. Uh, generally, they're the nicest, most generous, kindest people in the world. They'd give you the shirt off their back, but they might not have a shirt on their back. And their faith uh, is is wonderful to see. I remember being, Ted Wise and I went to India and. Uh, uh, they don't have the best of medical care, and we ask them, what happens if you're walking through a rice field and you get by a, bit by a cobra? What do you do? And they said, oh, we just get the, the injured person and gather over them and pray, and God heals them. Just sort of like that. And what do you do if you, somebody is demon-possessed? Oh, we just pray and cast the demon out. As if it was ordinary, you know, we'd reach for aspirin and go to the ER and 
But in third world countries, God's instantly available to them. Anyway, uh, in verse 8, he urges us to, to be careful to fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law is, remember, is this kind of summation of what the law intends for us. The law intends that we should love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and might, and we should love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the royal law. It's also called the law of liberty. If that's all you do, then you can forget about all the details in the law of Moses, all those 613 fine points. Now, there's value in the law of Moses, as you can see if you read through Psalm 119. The longest psalm in our Bible is about the law and the value of the law and telling us about the character of God. And it's a, it's a devotion about God. James goes on to tell us that if we keep the whole law and fail in any one point, we are lawbreakers and guilty of the whole law. You run a stop sign? As far as the law is concerned, you're a lawbreaker? Sorry. Lawbreaker is a category, and you're in that category now, and it doesn't matter what other laws you've broken, you are a lawbreaker. So uh, don't set out to try to keep the law. Now, well, that doesn't mean the laws of the land about speeding and red lights and stop signs and road rage and things. This is the law of Moses we're talking about here. Um, that's a really good, good verse for when you run on to people who are trying their hardest to be good Christians by self-effort. That little verse 10 is good. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all of it. Jesus said much the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then in verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now that suddenly comes full score to the fact that you became acceptable in the eyes of God by your faith in Jesus Christ, apart from your works, apart from the keeping of the law. That's true of the Jews also. Remember that Paul's indictment of Israel in Romans is that they abandoned the righteousness which comes by faith and established their own righteousness, self-righteousness, which is associated with keeping the law, and that's why they're excluded from the grace of God, why they've shut themselves out. Self-righteousness shuts you out. And we have come to God and cried out for mercy for him, to him, and on the basis of faith, he has come into our lives, and he's dealing with us now as loving sons and daughters. So this is... Uh, what James has for us. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Uh, that's also the, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That's the, what uh, uh, Jesus himself said. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That's a very strong verse. Yet mercy triumphs over judgment. If you are harsh and judgmental towards other people, uh, you can expect to receive the same back from God. Uh, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged with the judgment you dish out to others. You yourself will be judged. That's this condemning kind of judgment where you put other people down and make yourself look good. And here James is saying that very same thing. Uh, and he, he, he wants us to be judged by the mercy and love of God. And there's this wonderful little phrase at the end of verse 13. Yet mercy triumphs over judgment. The word triumphs there is shouts out loud. Mercy shouts out loud over judgment. The uh, wonderful grace of God covers any sin and all sin and every sin. And so we should cling to God for mercy and not 
bother with trying to keep the law and to live up to the impossible standards. And uh, that's what we want, is it not, all day long. I don't know anybody in here who regularly uh, prays that God would give them justice today. Have you ever done that? God, would you please treat me justly today? I have been wronged. I have been cheated. I've been mistreated. Everything's gone wrong. May I please have some justice? I don't think so. <laughs> no way. As that R.C. Sproul says, that's the last thing in the world you ever want to pray for is justice. Instead, pray for mercy. And you'll know that, that, that that's always what the Apostle Paul prays for his people. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Don't leave the justice up to God in the long run. All right. Now, we're going to switch subjects again, and we'll get into what was the battleground in the early church for a long time. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James first time he read it, and he was ready to trash it. But later on, in his later life, he said, oh, it sounds like it's probably okay, and it got into the canon. Perfectly good book. What does it profit, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can faith save him? And we get into a faith versus works discussion. And we want to make sure that everybody gets this and you sort it all out and we're clear about it. What does it profit? Of what value is it if someone says he has faith but there are no works which result from his faith? Can his mere faith, his Mere profession of faith save him? Answer, no. Can his head knowledge save him? How many theologians do you know that are full of head knowledge? But, you know, as Dave Roper used to say, the longest journey in the universe is from the head to the heart. That's, it's terribly difficult to get head knowledge down to the heart where it affects the way you live. And the head knowledge is of no value. Your profession of faith is no value unless it changes the way you live. Now, would everybody kind of agree with that? Now, we're going to get to, he uses Abraham in a very interesting way a little bit later on down here. And we'll see how he wants us to see this from from the life of Abraham. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The word dead, there's necros, from which we get necrotic, you know, like dead flesh from gangrene. <laughs> Pretty strong here. If your, faith does, if your faith does not lead to a change in your lifestyle and the way you daily live and the way you respond to things when they come along your path, then you ought to stop and think, have I really believed and trusted in God? Have I really turned my life over to Him? That saving faith will always, as a result... Bring about a change in the way you live. Maybe not all at once, but that's what saving faith is. It's not just head knowledge, okay? So he's, uh, uh, James is hitting really hard on religious Jews who loved uh, the show of religion and the, all the pomp and ceremony of, uh, of uh, the, the temple and the, the, the ceremonial parts of the law. And yet their lifestyles, will they go out of their way to help somebody who is destitute or poor or in need? Well, no. How many things, how many parables does Jesus use in the Gospels that illustrate this very thing about the Pharisees? Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Got that? 
People like to boast that I go to church, I believe in God, or I've been a Christian all my life. Um, I'm just as good as you are. Um, I, I pay my taxes. I give money to the church. Isn't that good enough? Then there's another person who doesn't boast about their faith, who doesn't brag about their religiosity. They just quietly go around serving people. Which one would you be more likely to uh, trust? The quiet one who's just quietly living out his or her life in a loving, caring way. Remember when we talked last week about that, that, that little obscure word for religion that he uses? Pure religion before God and the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is, real Christianity tends to have a low profile. You don't run around boasting about your good works, and you don't need to run around boasting about your intellectual knowledge of the Bible. Yes. That's great. Yeah, fruit trees aren't noisy when they grow fruit. <laughs> I like that. It's just and as as uh, Ray Sedman used to say, resurrection power doesn't make any noise either. It doesn't go pop, crack, snap, and it works best in a graveyard. And <laughs> you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Isn't that a quite a poke at us here? Oh, so you think you're so smart? So you know all the right theology, huh? Well, I got something that uh, uh, a little better. All the all the demons, all the fallen angels are well versed in theology. <laughs> so, what have you got that the demons don't have? <laughs> if your faith has not changed your life, okay? Do you want to know, do you want to know, oh foolish man, foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now he doesn't use the word dead there at Necros. He uses the word useless. Uh, doesn't has no no positive consequences. Faith, a mere profession of faith, if it isn't accompanied by a changed lifestyle, by actions based on trust, that's it's useless. It's empty faith. Now we'll go to Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, this calls uh, for us to do a little homework about the life of Abraham and go back and see at what point in his life did God say to Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, which is the whole subject of Romans 4. It's the whole subject of imputed righteousness. Uh, here's Abraham. He's living along with his pagan relatives down in southern Iraq, and God spoke to him in the middle of the night and said, get up and go. So he got up and went at the age of 70. And then he's, uh, at the age of 75, he moved on into the promised land. And uh, God gave him a whole series of things to do, and he obeyed every single thing. Wouldn't you have said, wouldn't you have said that, that God was pleased with his very first step of faith? Wouldn't you have said, gee, that's good enough, he's obeying God? Wouldn't you have given him his diploma at that point and said, uh, he's a believer, he's justified by his faith? Well, you'd think so, because every single step of the way, he's 
trusted God. Well, it's 30 years later before God says that about him. 30 years. He has just rescued Lot from Sodom, uh, from uh, uh, from the marauding kings of Babylon who came in and plundered Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham took 300 men and and rescued Lot and put him back in his pound where he didn't belong anyway. And uh, uh, turned down the money the king of Sodom wanted to pay him and met with Melchizedek. And then there's a, a, another kind of act of consecration. And that's the point that God says to him, Abraham, you're justified by faith. Well, have there been a lot of good works all along? Yes. Has there been faith operating all along? Yes. Uh, the early church sometimes would not accept people into membership until they had about a year of probation. You make a profession of faith and you'd be put on a list. And as long as maybe every few months, somebody in the church would examine your life and check out and see how you're doing. And then at the end of maybe a year of probation, they'd accept you into formal membership just to make sure that your profession of faith was genuine. Well, we don't do that now, but sometimes the early church did that. Now, what's the whole point here? What is it that God's, why does he pick Abraham here? And remember, Abraham is always the example of what it's like to live by faith. For Jews, for Gentiles, he's the father of all who believe. He's our father spiritually. He's held up as the example of faith. And what does James want us to know here? The law had not been given. And uh, that, remember, that also comes up by Paul. Paul in Romans brings up that Abraham's faith uh, justified him before God long before the law of Moses ever was uh, given. And so the law of Moses doesn't come into this argument at all, really. Long obedience in the same direction, day in, day out. Finishing well, not just starting well. Yes, he gets circumcised after this. So, again, Paul brings that out, that, that he was justified apart from circumcision and apart from the law, and uh, that his faith it was always accompanied by obedience and by all the way to the point of offering his own son as a sacrifice until God intervened. Now, you can see where James's heart is. James wants to see our lives changed and transformed by the way we live, by our, our faith. He wants to see us acting on it, going out into the unknown, trusting God over a long period of time, taking risks. That's saving faith. Yep. I can, you know, you can imagine what it's going to be like when we all go meet Abraham and he thinks that maybe a few dozen people are going to show up to honor him. And uh, all these millions of Jews will show up and all these people that uh, came before the Jews and then all of us are going to show up. And I ha- hope he has a big house because <laughs> we're all his kids and he- we're all his- the seed. We're all the spiritual seed of Abraham. And they- I think he'll be a little startled. And Sarah, I don't know if Sarah can cook for that many people. Not 
Absolutely right. That's exactly what James is bugging him really bad, that he knows all sorts of people who say they believe, who say they have faith, but it doesn't ever result in a changed life in any actions that would... Isn't that a lot, isn't that a lot about Christians today? Not anybody in this room, but, you know, some of the people down the street. <laughs> None of us. But do you see that faith was working together with his, that faith was working together with his works. You see, faith and works are co-energized. They're, they're synergistic here. His faith was working together with works, and by works, his faith was made perfect. Now, the word perfect there means brought to maturity. It doesn't mean flawless. It means brought to maturity. It's the exercise of faith in works that causes you to grow mature in Christ. Long obedience makes you mature in Christ, and, and holiness or wholeness is God's goal for our lives. So it's really a very urgent matter then to act on what God has said. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. That uh, friend of God comes out of Isaiah, I think. And uh, how many people in the Old Testament are called the friend of God? Well, I don't think of anybody except Abraham. How about, what about in the New Testament? Moses, Moses yeah. Enoch. Enoch, well, he was in pretty good, maybe a few. Uh, come to the New Testament, anybody called the friend of God? All of us. It's pretty awesome that Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants. A servant does not know what his master is doing. From now on, I call you friends. That's really good, yeah. Moses is the servant in the house of God, and, and Jesus owns the house, and he invites us to draw into the intimacy of his fellowship of his house. And Jesus didn't qualify friendship if you were friendship. Yes, yeah, yeah, you are my friends if you do what I tell you. So there's a little bit of a qualification tacked on. If you're really my friends, you'll obey me, because that's what friends do. So, yeah. A little fire insurance. So, uh, so sometimes people become Christians or say they become Christians as if it was an, a little extra fire insurance. That doesn't work. Won't, won't work. Um, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now that would be easily misunderstood if we believed or taught in, in a, a salvation by works only, which uh, is a common uh, heresy in the church today, and uh, that, that it is our good works which save us, 
And uh, that's not what James is saying at all. He's saying that the combination of your faith, which results in good works, is a package deal. Is that okay? You happy with that? It's the life, and yeah, if you have, if you let Jesus live through you, you give Jesus permission to live through you, and he does good works through you, who gets the credit? <laughs> Jesus does. You don't get a long certificate saying, that, here are all the good works you did. You get a, a certificate that says Jesus was well pleased with you because you served him well. Uh, now, here we go. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, Rahab is the prostitute in the city of Jericho uh, whom Joshua encountered. Joshua sent spies into Jericho, this walled city, after they crossed the Jordan from the east side. He sent a couple some spies in and they visited the house of uh, Rahab, the town prostitute. They didn't visit her for her services. They visited her for information, obviously. And Rahab said, did Rahab make a long profession of faith? Did they hand her a Bible and give her uh, the four spiritual laws and explain to her all about uh, how to be saved and then say, well, we'll come back in a week and we'll see if you'd like to make a profession of faith and and we'll baptize you? No, it didn't go like, how did it go? Well, the, the Canaanites were deadly afraid of the, the Israelis. We knew that. They knew who the God of Israel was. They knew they were living on borrowed time. And Rahab, it was common knowledge there. And Rahab said, I want to choose to be identified with the people of God. I want to join these people. And they said, sure, you can come and be one of us by faith. And she had to put her life on the line instantly. If she's caught by the town officials, she'll be killed instantly. And the spies say, get get all of your family and friends who want to believe and who want to be saved and get them here in your house. And before we destroy the city, we'll rescue you. And they did. And was it her works that saved her? Well, yes. Was there saving faith behind the works? Yes, there was. She was believing and acting in a short time period. And whatever happened to this lady? She got married into the bloodline that leads to Jesus. So she's in the family of Jesus and, and greatly blessed by her faith and her actions. Okay? So his works the same as obedience? Yeah. It, uh, pretty much, yes. If God gives you something to do and you obey, that's that's the right thing to do. Rahab, if Rahab had said, well, I'll think about it, because uh, I don't think I want to take that big a risk, or, golly, why don't you go next door, maybe they'll help you. All of that would have disqualified her, wouldn't it? Remember, she hung the little scarlet ribbon outside of her window so they'd know where to come and rescue her. Don't do any works. You, uh, you who were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, God made alive together with Christ. But then later on in the chapter, it talks about being, you're created for good works. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has foreordained that you should walk in them. In other words, God, you're, when you're dead, spiritually dead, you can't do any good works. You're not capable of any good works. When you believe and trust in Jesus, he's got a whole life laid out in front of you of good works that he wants you to move into and discover. They're all, all planned ahead for you, which is exciting. makes the Christian life exciting because it's tailored to you, to your individuality. Okay? I like verse 26. <laughs> As the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead also. What's the difference between a live person and a person on the slab in the mortuary? person on the slab in the mortuary, their spirit has left them. <laughs> and if the spirit leaves you, you're dead and, the, and nothing can, more can be done. And of course, people who don't know the Lord are spiritually dead and incapable of doing any good works that please God. So he, this is one of these little punches that James throws in here. Okay? Nobody getting a big fight over works and faith here. My brothers, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That is scary. Anybody who teaches the Bible or who talks publicly or openly about the Lord Jesus Christ in teaching and preaching is held to a high degree of accountability in two areas. Did what you say and teach, was it accurate? Was it biblical? Was it consistent? Was it well-rounded? Was it well-balanced? A. Did you get your theology right, or did you teach a bunch of heresy to these people, number one? Number two, what is your lifestyle? Does your lifestyle match your profession of faith? Those two things. And so, remember when we had our study in Jude in here, how false teachers not only get their doctrine wrong, their lifestyles are usually pretty screwed up too. In fact, if you see their screwed up lifestyle, that might draw attention to their teaching being out of order. So uh, uh, be a little careful before you assume to teach God's people uh, because God will hold you accountable. And teachers, of course, influence us tremendously all the way from the first grade right on up. Uh, please don't believe anything I say. When you go home, please get out your Bibles and be like the Bereans and, and check everything that I tell you and pray that mercy will triumph over judgment. Does anybody want to take next week? Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think of that verse every time I get turned on some of these raunchy TV preachers that won't name any of them. Well, Heresy Herald Camping would be one of my favorites. Uh, we all stumble. Oh, now here we're going to get this going to get juicy, but it won't affect any of you here. Uh, we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. That would be mature. Able to bridle the whole body. All of us trip up a lot in the course of our Christian lives. We stumble and fall and pick ourselves up and take God's forgiveness and go on. And now he says, every one of you stumbles in word, in speech. And he's going to get into this nasty subject of the tongue, which you would think was so innocuous. You know, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but words will never harm me kindergarten nursery rhyme when in fact it is with words that we can do the most vicious terrible damage to people and that's the subject of James and he says here he's going to tell us that taming the tongue is the most difficult thing in the world this is what his whole subject is 
Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Here's a great powerful horse, and you train the horse, and it responds to a bit in its mouth. Look also at the ships. Look at the great sailing ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Isn't that amazing? A great sailing ship has a little rudder, and the pilot turns this wheel, and the little rudder changes the whole course of the ship. All this is about the tongue now. He's going to talk about the tongue. Even so, the tongue is a little member. Little member. Small part of your body. And it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. <laughs> this is pretty. One careless word, one little bit of slander, one little bit of juicy gossip. And it's so much fun to gossip and tell juicy stories and, and make fun of people uh, maliciously. And uh, you set a whole forest on fire that way. Yes, I think that's true. I think, don't you think so? People are more vulnerable to a word of gospel or innuendo or slander than they are to the simple truth. Yeah. That's that's exactly. We're in this information age, and and that we all of the blogs and all of the scandal sheets and all of the things that people write up that are opinions. It would be terrible to be in a in a prominent office. Look at all the slander the president faces every week. How would you check it out? How would you know how he's doing in his job in the real world? Uh, only God knows. We've, we're in a nation that loves to assassinate people all the time. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It's just like a little microcosm of, uh, sin, of deep sin. The, the root. The t- it's as if your tongue was connected to a cesspool. The idea in here, he's very strong. The tongue is set among our members in such a way that it defiles the whole body and it sets on fire the course or the wheel of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. That's very, very strong language, is it not? Your tongue is is connected to insidious evil, and that connection goes down as deep as hell, so you are capable of doing absolutely horrendously bad things with your tongue. And I remember the posters in World War II, loose lips sink ships. Because <laughs> we were all concerned about the war effort and Japanese and German spies everywhere. So then the word was loose lips sink ships. Earlier, remember, James said, let everybody uh, uh, be, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Stop and listen and don't talk until you've thought over what you're going to say. This is... I don't like this, but I think maybe we could get this edited out here because it's. <laughs> but look, this is as strong as the Bible is, I think, anywhere. And can you imagine it's just about the tongue, our harmless, innocent tongue? 
Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and every creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's a strong analogy. We can go out and do lion, lion hunting and tame lions and elephants and tigers and all the wild animals of the sea. We can tame them. These great heroic nature programs. But can you tame the tongue? It escapes us. Answer, obviously, is only God can tame the tongue, obviously. With uh, It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with the same tongue we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. Isn't that interesting? We do that. I do. Do you do that? You see somebody who's not a Christian? And they're made in the image of God. Maybe God's going to bring them to himself. And you rip them to shreds and put them down. And It's pretty uh, strong. With the same tongue, we, we bless God and curse men who are made in the likeness of God. And th- th- you can see here God's love for all humanity is in here. God has respect for everybody, even the worst of sinners have Respect, And we are called to love our enemies and love those who hate us. And that's not usually what we do, do we? We don't usually love our fellow Christians very much. Except down this, that we do here, of course. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Whoever heard of a, a spring of fresh water... Uh, bubbling up in the forest, and right alongside of it, a spring of salt water uh, it would be unheard of in nature. And, of course, the salt water, the brackish water, would immediately ruin the good water. And so he uses the analogy of a well spring. The well spring of the spirit in your life is pure water, and the well spring of evil in your life is this brackish, defiling, poisonous water. Is that a strong picture? Whoever heard of that? Should, should be unheard of, the idea is. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. That's strong. Yeah, me too. Yeah.
That's good. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> it can't be recalled. It can't be recalled. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it tends to not get erased. It's not very erasable. Email is not terribly erasable. I was thinking this week that as many times as I've read this, it wouldn't hurt for me to ask the Lord to please uh, uh, shine a little light on my heart, my motives, my, the things that I say that, I, that are habitual, that are, you know, to a little examination of this. Because obviously in James it's a big deal. And it, it, the suggestion in James is it's a whole lifetime of work learning how to, to speak Clearly and lucidly and graciously, and not overstate or understate or distort. I think we're probably all pretty much together on this. Let's look at this, the next few verses here. Yeah, it is part of works. Yeah, how you speak. It is. That's part of repentance, yeah. <laughs> repentance, yeah. Bob. Thank you. That's great. We can probably tack on this last little part, which goes along with this. Verse 13. There are two kinds of wisdom available in the world, and James wants us to see the difference between two types of wisdom. It may not occur to you that there's true wisdom and there's false. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct by his lifestyle, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Uh, meekness means, means uh, it has to do with self-control. It has to do with strength under perfect control. Uh, um, if you have a bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This kind of wisdom, that is bitter envy and self-seeking, does not descend from above, but it's earthly sensual, demonic. That means if, that we actually get, we can connect ourselves with that, this 
a demonic source of wisdom that's in the world and and speak the words of wisdom that are evil and harmful it comes back to the tongue again if we don't stop and it's and wisdom you know everybody respects wisdom where envy and self-seeking exist confusion instability and every evil thing will be there Isn't that interesting that's strong again in a situation where envy and self-seeking exist among any of us, accompanying it will be confusion and all sorts of evil. The behavior of the whole assembly matters, in other words, that our individual behavior. In contrast, the wisdom that is from above, this is beautiful here, the wisdom that comes down from above, from God, the Father of lights, is first pure, then it is peaceable. Uh, It brings shalom, in other words. It brings peace and harmony. It is gentle. It is willing to yield, means beyond the law, doesn't nitpick over small points, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now you see he's contrasting two lifestyles here. The lifestyle in which we just casually, carelessly go along with the wisdom of the world, which has this destructive, divisive, harmful quality to it. And and, And on the other hand, if God would like us to learn to draw from the wisdom on high, which uh, is, uh, is, is peaceable, brings harmony, settles disputes. That, isn't that neat, the contrast here? The wisdom from above is first pure. Nothing wrong with the motives there. Peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, not phony. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The person who lives this kind of lifestyle, sowing peace by the wisdom from above, is going to have a harvest of righteousness. Now, that's all sort of ties together here. The tongue and false wisdom and the way we live. It's all one package here. This applies to the individual. It applies to all of us. Okay. I think that's probably a good place to stop and have uh, some intercessory prayer from Steve for for all of us here today. Lord, I I think we all identify uh, this is a very convicting passage for us. And we do pray, Lord, that by your spirit we would speak uh, words of blessing and truth. And that we we would be conscious of what we say, Lord. Um, We do want to be committed to the wisdom from above. And so, Lord, uh, we hear the words of James, and we, we don't want to just uh, acknowledge these things in our heads, but we want to be obedient uh, to you because you paid the price for us and you love us so much, Father. Help us to return by loving you in the same way that you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.